Farouk, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. So the reason I'm very happy to have you on the show is because the pandemic for me, like many people, was probably, you know, among the hardest experiences of my life. You were a friend who I made during the pandemic. So basically, you have seen me pretty much at my worst and you were just like super friendly and a nice guy that I had never met, never met before. We were introed by a friend, by a mutual acquaintance, and we just became friends. And I just thought that was like great because this is an industry that, depending on how you treat it, is either a very fun collaborative environment or a shark tank. Yeah. Some people treat it more like a shark tank. Some people treat it more like a collaborative environment. It's obviously both. At some level, it's both. It is zero sum, but it's also positive sum. That's what's interesting about venture. So, you know, I think we got a lot of ground to cover. And the place to start is what you are iconic of. And what you are iconic of is the shift and the decentralization of venture capital. Essentially, the concept that venture capital has gotten blown up, basically, and the pieces are falling to the ground as the venture capital world reconfigures itself in an environment where computing is undergoing a complete renaissance. Yep. Capital markets are undergoing a complete renaissance, digital transformation, cloud, lots of forces are changing the market dynamics. Your positioning there is solo GP. You've just raised your second fund, which is what, 30 million? 23.1. 23.1. So your first one was 10? Yeah, small. It was like a friends and family vehicle and it was about 1.1 million bucks. Okay, yeah. right. So this is fund one. Really. So this is so perfect because there's a lot of people listening that are sort of like, I don't know what the heck to do in my career. I'm basically lost mm. in my career. I want to be a venture capitalist. They decide they want to be a venture capitalist. They want to be a solo GP. You're sort of iconic of that. Tell me a little bit about how you position yourself for long-term prosperity while operating essentially as a solo GP. Yeah, great question. And I've been a long-time listener of the show, and I, I love this show so much, by the way. I think you do a super, super good job. I always learn from it. So for the listeners who are interested in venture and investing... It's a lifelong love and journey. It's not like a, you know, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. I mean, honestly, I started investing and truly deploying capital in 2013. And only like in the past two years have I had a couple of IPOs. Like it takes time, like better part of the decade. How to position for prosperity. So for one, at least on a more personal and fulfillment level, you have to just be yourself. <laughs> that like the best version for prosperity and success, in my opinion, is like long-term yourself and like long-term oriented growth. So for me, I worked at a handful of different venture capital funds. I was always drawn to early stage. And for some reason, no matter where my partners asked me to look in certain areas or geographies, I always wanted to look more in enterprise infrastructure, which is fantastic. I find intellectually stimulating. I like the people. And I love that it was sort of like a meta way to think, okay, data goes from here to here, then it goes to this cloud application. Oh, the security team is pissed off at the build team for doing this too quickly. And like how to make this life better. And also, by the way, for me, film and perspective, I just felt so good that, you know, I don't think people in this world know how unsecure our environment is from a cybersecurity perspective. And when you go and do business online with anyone, Capital One, you buy something online, you buy a gift, you were giving your credit card information and personal details that's mishmashed together with metadata. Anyway, like I learned that this industry was really good and useful for me and it fit with me, but then the sub market was really good and it fit with me too. And that answer is not the same for everyone. You know, like some people have different affinities. Some people might be, you know, let's say even in venture, you know, there's consumer, but let's just say within, within enterprise, 
enterprise is so big. You could be like a bottoms up SaaS person. You could be oriented towards sales and marketing technology and that kind of automation. You could like storage a lot. Like and uh, and this market changes so quickly. Even people and again with due respect, people who have had exits of hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars, if they're not in it for even two or three years, the whole market changes. So anyway. Find the thing that like feels right for you from an intellectual perspective. Be around the people that help you grow and you learn from them and you teach them in some ways too. And just stay. <laughs> just stay and don't get distracted and, and continue because, you know, on a macro level, I mean, yeah, look, you know, 65% of the market share and 58% of the companies that have gone public started with like the help of a venture capitalist, not started by a VC. I don't want to be so bold to say that because it's the entrepreneurs that do really all the work, but we're important too. So the enterprise point, there are going to be people who are listening to this podcast and their core competencies as a software engineer. And their passion is to create software. They think creatively, they want to be a creative software engineer. They may even be coming from college campus or a software boot camp. When they hear the words enterprise software, they think that's really boring, that's not interesting. Actually, what enterprise software really means is software that is built within a decision-making and economic infrastructure that is more rational than consumer. That's all it means. Really good. That's a great summary. That's literally all it means. So like, if you want to play with irrational people, you go to consumer. If you want to play with rational people, you go to enterprise. And obviously there's like, it's a gradation, right? It's literally rationality versus irrationality. Nice. Do you want to have some ridiculous growth hack that just plays off of human, human, human irrationality? Like, do you want to play in that environment or do you want to play in the highly rational look? I made a WYSIWYG editor for nonprofit like event sales yeah. or something like super, super niche. I know exactly who my customer is, but perhaps my market is bounded. You know, the excitement level of the business is bounded. And then you have something in between. You have the consumerization of the enterprise. The reason the consumerization of the enterprise business is so appealing is because you have that sweet spot where you have clear market demographic, but also that universal, like id-driven consumerization irrationality thing like slack is simultaneously a rational person's product and an irrational person's product Hmm. so do you agree with that thesis like from what i can tell like if you want to place the bets with the highest upside you're kind of going after consumerization of the enterprise just a crazy thesis yeah well actually actually, so i want to answer your question but I'll i'll give you some data and quant for the consumer versus enterprise piece. If you look in the last years, there's been about a trillion dollars in enterprise value that's been created from enterprise software and infrastructure. And in consumer, it's been about around 700 billion. And if you take away the top five exits from the consumer side, like you know Uber and DoorDash and this, that, that number slashes about in half. And so there's a greater loss ratio, to use a technical term, as a venture capitalist and consumer on average. So basically like the number of or the, the percentage of dollars that one invests as a consumer VC that returns less than one is lower. And an enterprise, it's it's not like that at all. It's way more distributed. There's so many companies. Like, think about all the buyers in this market. Think, okay, fine. In consumer, yeah, there's Amazon, there's Google, there's, you know, some of the delivery companies. Then you have, like, you know, the 
the Google for XGO or YGO. Man, an enterprise infrastructure, like you'd be like, Oracle can buy this, or this is going to compete with Cisco, or this is going to compete with you know Microsoft's enterprise part of the business. Like, there's so many more companies. So anyway, I love your thesis. I actually th- do agree with it, and that's such an interesting tension. And for the consumeration of enterprise like products and like the usage, like, it has to be massish market mass usage. And so, what are the tools that people use every single day? Yeah, it's like communications and marketing typically. Can you tell me a little bit more about like where does it bring you to? So, okay, here's the big upheaval that's actually happening right now. This was already happening before COVID, but here's what's really been laid bare by COVID. Essentially, every major corporation has a hair on fire problem right now and many of them don't even realize it, the hair on fire problem is your employees don't want to work at your company. They don't want to go and work at your HQ. You've got all this dead weight in terms of cost and operations. A lot of it is associated with on-prem workforce. On-prem workforce is not happening anymore. These companies that are trying to make their employees go back to the office, Amazon or Google or whatever, they're trying to make fetch happen. Like <laughs> fetch is not happening. Yeah. It's not happening. Like these employees, I mean, I talk to these employees on a regular basis. They're like, yeah, like I'm going back to the office now. I'm like, why? Mm. What are you doing? And they're like, well, you know, they're asking me to. I'm like, quit. So yeah, Leave. you have choices. Like yeah. literally, like, do you have a reason that you have to stay there? Do you have green card issues? If you don't leave. Yeah. It's that simple. Like you have no reason to work at this place. And if you want to work at a bigger corporation, you should be figuring out how to work from home most optimally. If you want to work from an office, you should construct your own office and you should expense it to the company. Like that's the amount of leverage you have as an engineer yeah. these days, like just easily. And you have human agency you could push. Exactly. Flatfile. Flatfile, for example, like Flatfile is really pioneering. Flatfile says, you join Flatfile, you're going to work on a remote workforce. We're going to put $10,000 into decking you out with a nice office. Nice one. So you want to go work at WeWork, go do that. You want to construct your own office, do that. I interviewed the Flatfile CEO. He was literally, his off his home office was undergoing construction. And at first I was like, that's kind of gaudy. And then I realized <laughs> that's not gaudy at all. That's very, very intelligent because you work so much more effectively in a home office that is amenable to your taste. Yeah. We know that there are issues with home offices. We know that there are things like, yeah, I've got kids at home. I live in a cramped apartment in New York. These these things are sort of edge cases. Mm-hmm. And they're things that can be worked around. So this is really the core upheaval that's going on. It's totally upending everything. It's changing everything. Yeah, and by the way, you know I talk about tech companies a lot. My brother works at Amgen. Amgen just gave a policy for complete, you don't need to come back to the office ever. Amgen, the biotech company. Right. It's incredible. Right, so that example... What's their policy for the people that have to come to the labs? So they definitely have like third parties to execute clinical trials, CROs, contract research organizations to do that. They definitely have clinical trials and stuff happens in-house. I don't know the exact details. I don't want to misspeak, but there is some categorization for the kind of job and function that you have to do. Like if it's like mission critical like that, like where you literally have to touch the thing and mess around with it, you have to come in, but really, really flexible. Like this is across the entire company. My brother's never come. Well, <laughs> I don't think he's like he enjoy, really enjoys and he's super productive at his house. And his he actually added a part <laughs> like a section to his home to, to sort of build this like flat file esque place of perfection. Yeah. So I'm like building these companies now. Hmm. And what I've realized is basically the way that offer letters and offers have been done in the past is totally outmoded. So in today's environment, If you find anybody that you want to work at your fast-growing, high-potential company, 
you basically have to say, here's a blank check. Give us the first offer. Tell us where to anchor the conversation. Hmm. If you enter into a conversation with a new hire saying, here's where I'm anchoring the conversation, you will immediately set yourself up for failure with that employee because the days of the adversarial relationship between the corporation and the individual are over. That's basically what happened during COVID because if you don't like where you work, you go start a newsletter. Yeah. Like, no, there are pl- plenty of more options and they should be viewed as partners, like a partnership. And I know who is it even like, a, was it Lattice, uh, Jack Altman's company? Like if an employee leaves, they'll just, they'll just write a check. Yes. That's amazingly supportive. And like, that's the kind of stuff. I mean, and there've been actually software tools, like trying to like figure out how to like, you know, monetize alumni networks and do it in a really transactional way. But if you truly just treat people good and honorably, and, you know, maybe not exactly in the way that you describe like blank check, but like more of an open conversation, a lot of good things can happen and people will be with you forever, you know? But eventually what it becomes is like, if you leave Lattice, Tiger gives you a check, (laughs) right? It's not just Jack Alden. It's like Tiger gives you a check. Yeah. Is that your food? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I'm starving. My flight came in at uh, 12.30. Farouk is literally starving. Okay, go grab (laughs) your food. Give me one second. I will monologue a little bit. So I'm wearing a ridiculous outfit right now. I did it on purpose. I have a SoftBank hat that I got it on deck. I have a Dev shirt. Dev is the first company that I ever invested in. And then I have a Sequoia jacket because I'm affiliated with Sequoia. So I'm just monologuing while I wait for Farouk to come back with his food. I hope people have read Move Fast. It's the book I'm working on, or it just finished, I guess, just released. You can get it for free as a podcast. All right. You got your food? Awesome. All right. So we'll just like chat while you chow down. Like, I think this is postmodern podcasting. (laughs) Postmodern. So you got boba and a a wrap or something? No, yeah. So this is an ice latte. Yeah, I don't know if it's a little cliche, but I miss the Grove. So I don't live in San Francisco right now. I live in Los Angeles, but the Grove is always a soft spot for me. Grove is great. Okay, here's a Grove story. Since you got to take out your food, I love, start I love Grove stories, dude. The best Grove story. Do you know who Oren Hoffman is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, From have, you, have you met him? Have you talked to him? I have talked to him. I've never met him before. So, Oren Hoffman is transcendental level business philosopher guy. <laughs> Many people don't know who he is. I'm always talking about how good his he's. Court. He's also a really good investor. Very good investor. Yeah. yeah. In markets that are not so like common and typical, like ad tech and marketing technology. Yes. Yeah. Oh man, I'd love to talk to you about ad tech. But so Oren Hoffman, I met him for the first time at the Grove. I think it was, there's a Yerba Buena location, I think. I think yeah. that's where I met him. That's the go-to. Is the Grove Yerba Buena actually the one that's in Yerba Buena Gardens? Or is it like just below the Yerba Buena it's Gardens? It's just, just below. Just below the Yerba Buena Gardens. So that's where I met him. He arrives literally to the minute at the time when we're supposed to meet, I just see out of the corner of my eye this guy walking past the window. I've never met Oren Hoffman before. I just knew him from Quora. He was kind enough to meet me in person, even though he's this executive. This I'm this random that just left. <laughs> I had literally left Amazon to hmm. start this podcast. I was in between Amazon and the podcast. I had to pay back my signing bonus to Amazon. I had like 15 grand in the bank. I'm like, wow. well, let's see if I can make this work. <laughs> so I'm like meeting with Oren Hoffman. I meet with Oren Hoffman. I'm like telling him, dude, you can eat. Seriously. Oh, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to. Chow down. <laughs> so I'm meeting with Oren Hoffman. And like the first thing he says, I think, was something like, so you were at Amazon for what, five minutes? Because <laughs> I had worked <laughs> at Amazon for eight months. That's and funny. Only eight months. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like a little embarrassed. And then we just start talking about ideas. And it was one of the most invigorating conversations I've ever had. Because mm. I had just left Amazon. I basically had like a few. I had like two or three ideas. 
I ended up doing software engineering daily. Like software engineering daily was the main thing, but I wanted to run these like crazier ideas by Oren. <laughs> and basically by running them through his filter, I was able to, to very clearly wow. know that software engineering daily was the thing to start. That's so cool that that small interaction helped. I'm sure it's uh, it's good to, good to always say thank you. I'm sure he knows by this thank you. Oh yeah. So he's coming on the show in another month or so, I think. But yeah, th- that's the thing. So that's what's cool about Silicon Valley, which I, why you should move back, calling <laughs> you out publicly for not living here anymore. I really want to hang out with you more. But like, that's what you get out of Silicon Valley is you still get that today, by the way. Most people didn't leave Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, this is this will remain and be a very, very important part of the innovation ecosystem. I mean, all the big companies are here and a lot of people. You want know, to highlight, though, of the 16 companies that I've invested in and fund two, only four of them are Bay Area headquartered. Others, Boston, Denver, a bunch in New York, Toronto, even Vancouver. So, you know. Right. So, I mean, I get you there. Like, okay, the location agnostic in Calendly. Calendly's in Kansas City, right? Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, we know this. I'm so happy I'm eating, by the way. I was starving. Thank good. you. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you're eating, too. Listen, man, you're in town to celebrate, right? We're going to mm-hmm. celebrate. We're having a good time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no. So, okay, we have location agnosticism. I get that. And by the way, if you want to go build a company in Atlanta, if you want to be one of the people to plant a flag. So, here's the thing, right? We're at stage zero in basically a global renaissance in computing. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on. We're in stage zero AWS essentially kicked off a new industrial revolution. And that's what's going on right now. We have AWS on the supply side, we have mobile on the demand side, and we just have an expanding supply demand curve. Mm -hmm. That's like, if you think about it from fundamental economic perspectives, and then like you have things like crypto that are just like adding a third dimension to that economic expansion frontier. Next feet, next decade is me insane. It's insane. It's it's absolutely insane. And, And we're in a great place for it. On that note, I was talking to somebody this morning. I've been talking to actually a lot of people. So a very good friend of mine who's a very, very top tier investor basically is tapped out. Like literally there is so much opportunity. He's tapped out. He's working seven days a week. He's just Hmm. maxed out, which is kind of the environment we're in. Like people are drowning in opportunity. Do you feel that way or do you feel like you're just on the cusp? If you're not there yet, you will be in five to 12 months. Like you're literally going to be drowning in opportunity because there's too many good deals. It's a great point. And I think... I think it was Mike Maples who said this elegantly, just like your fund size is your strategy. So I don't know about your top tier friend where this he or she is from. I choose to only invest four to six companies per year. And I have a three-year deployment period versus two like a lot of other people. And so saying no is like part of the game. And also getting to know people slowly is quite a good thing. But oh man, like do I feel like like remiss that I couldn't invest in this and this and this? I would love to, but it has it has implications. It's like responsibility and it's like honor. I mean, you, you know, for for every company that Preface invests in, we have an SLA where we introduce four customers in the first 12 months of working together. And then we'll surface and we'll highlight two hires that someone should have, like a product marketing manager or something esoteric, like a developer evangelist who maybe exited a company before. And like that kind of, even if they don't hire that person, like, or if they don't convert all the customers, like that kind of osmosis is really good outside of someone's network who often for preface is usually a VP of engineering of product or engineering who builds something internally at a big company like an Oracle or Netflix. And when they self-selected against open source and they built something proprietary, like those are my people. So to your friend, I feel for, I, is it, who, no, don't tell me, he or she, he, she? It's a he. It's a he. Okay. But there's also a she that I know that's in the exact, oh, sure. multiple she's that are in the same yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. No, I, three I, I can think of. I feel that saying no is just important. 
Because it's about like it's about time and focus. Like save your brain power for the right things and the right people and things you're like motivated and passionate by. Okay, let's get into process though. So there are these firms, there are these investment organizations that essentially have time bound processes. Mm-hmm. And when you have deal flow being aimed at you like a fire hose, yeah, it seems like you may have to change your process. So like let's take like just. Think about like the traditional sort of like Monday morning partner meeting cycle time, right? Like basically, as I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Monday morning partner cycle is sort of like Monday morning is where everybody sinks on the outstanding problems and deals and stuff. And then the rest, for the rest of the week, you almost operate completely asynchronously as a firm. You all synchronize around the Monday morning partner meeting. That's when decisions get made. The cycle time there is too slow. And like firms are having to reckon with that. Actually, even as a feedback for that, and I'm not sure it's still the case, but I believe Andreessen added uh, a Thursday to it, a Thursday kind so of like multiple partners. But but they're a minority, and I'm not sure if they still do it, but they definitely used to do it. Most people are, are Monday, Monday only. Do they centralize decision making into a single? Like, do all the deals have to go through Ben and Mark at that firm? I don't want to misspeak. I believe they have eight GPs now, if I'm right. And they have a lot of other people who are like deal partners and other people who are on the market development team and corporate development team. I believe there's greater autonomy that's not like, you know, just two people on the investment committee. And that happens. That happens at firms, you know, even for the people who started it at some point. It's almost even healthy. It's a good thing. You want people to be more more on the investment committee and to be more distributed because that means you're drawing in good talent and keeping good talent. It's a problem in the, in the Silicon Valley and elsewhere. That's actually one of the reasons why I think a lot of people start their own funds and spin off and, and create for their own, you know? Mm. But we were talking about deal flow and crazy deal flow. I think the way to go about it is to just try to be like a little thematic and have a point of view on stuff. Because otherwise you're like, like you'll, your brain will be stretched. It's like, you know, just having to multitask too many right. times. And I don't even feel good about it. I don't feel like honorable if like I'm just like talking to a founder and I'm like just dialing it in and just like asking like pretty generic questions. I'm like, oh God, that was like, that was not, I shouldn't swear. That was yeah not so good. <laughs> oh, listen, I mean, I've done that as a podcaster before. Like I show up unprepared and I'm like, okay, what's your thing? Is it an animal? <laughs> Is it a vegetable? Is it a cloud service? Is it a SaaS? tool yeah is it on-prem is it off-prem is yeah. it .net is it Rust? Please, please tell me you ask if like if what if amazon builds this <laughs> <gasps> oh <laughs> definitely be... <laughs> that's my favorite that's my favorite yeah, yeah what if there's like amazon basics electric cars <laughs> yeah just to finish it up, say no to more things. And also, too, it's so much more fruitful. It almost feels like romance, you know? Like, I know, like, with, a, like, a girl, if I meet her, there's, like, a spark. You know, if I meet a founder, like, he or she or they, and, like, I start the call and I'm like, hey, I've been looking, <laughs> I, <laughs> I've been looking in, like, in digital identity infrastructure for a long time, and we need to solve this digital identity problem. And the problem is there isn't, like, a mule software identity. There needs to be a better, like, API integration for all these legacy identity systems, the LDAP, the ODAP. And here's how I think it should happen. And we can't ignore on-prem. That's specific, right? It's kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to give an equivalent answer for like what a girl would be for me, because maybe I don't even know. But like, if you go and start that conversation, even if it doesn't perfectly match with the founder, the next conversation and the next several conversations will be so much more fruitful. And also like, it's a reflection of passion. Like you can't be passionate about every technical project in the world. Like, you know, and... What is a little bit of a shame with larger firms, and by the way, like I work with many of them and they're good partners downstream, 
you know, you play a coverage game. If you're inside of a venture firm, like my least favorite thing that I ever participated in was like a quarterly review of all the deals that got done by competitors. And then you just go back and be like, hey, like, why didn't we see this one? And then someone says like, oh, I, I sent it to you. And then there's this weird like internal debate. It's just so much of this is unproductive. It's positive sum. Positive sum is better. Find things you're really passionate about. And this is to, to the people you're describing earlier about people who want to become an angel investor. Just be specific and just be, and the word is overused, but really be authentic. Be authentic to what you want to like solve. Like, I want to solve more on uh, digital privacy and security. I think there's like a constant, constant tension between software build teams and cybersecurity teams. And like, what bite of the apple do you take? Do you take the data governance example, or do you do identity and access management? Do you try to shift led, shift left for code deployment stuff? Okay, if you do these things, like what are the pros? What are the cons? There's like that's the level of depth that I hope founders like meet, and I hope actually like I meet them too to feel like a peer and not just a person on the quote unquote other side of the table. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, I'd like to kind of have a conversation about what is changing at the enterprise. So the one of the themes that has definitely emerged as I have been doing the show, it's this has always been a thing, but the whole build versus buy thing, hmm. and really just the recognition that oh, this is another Orrin Hoffmanism. So one of my <laughs> favorite one of my favorite Orrin Hoffmanisms is there was a, a time probably three or four years ago he got involved in this business called Siftery. Have you heard of Siftery? So, so Siftery is is a, a friend of mine, Ian Barua. He co-founded this company, Siftery. The idea of Siftery was essentially we're going to be the index of software tools and how they fit together. So you think That's stack a cool sh- idea. like stack shares. Yeah, you, you yeah. Look at stack share. yeah, of course. Yeah. So stack share, you can go to any company and see the tools that they use. That's the premise of stack share. Premise of Siftery is sort of you take that, but you turn it into more of an end by end sort of thing. What are all the products that the company segment uses? What are all the companies that use Segment? Oh, I have just, heard of this thing before. Just like cool. what's the yeah. entire fractal nature of vendors and how they relate to one another? Really big idea. They had this product, Siftery Track, that was kind of like QuickBooks for vendors. A QuickBooks for vendor management. Not even QuickBooks for vendor management. It was more like basically the idea of Siftery Track was you link up your bank. I think mm. it was you link up your bank or your credit card. Very forward-looking idea, like kind of Plaid integration sort of thing. Integrate with Plaid, suck in all your transactions. We're going to tell you where you're spending money and where you should, where you could save money. Helps you with uh, vendor negotiation, for example. That's useful. It's really useful. I mean, the ultimate idea is you think of it as like literally you go here to tell you where you should save money in your infrastructure. It's almost the ultimate cost management tool. Hmm. It's a just brilliant idea. They ended up merging with G2 Crowd. Yeah, yeah. So like very natural synergy. G2 is growing like a weed. Makes complete sense. But around this time, so Oren was involved. I think he was the ch- he became the chairman of Siftery. So he basically was, you know, in between Live Ramp and SafeGraph. Hmm. Oren Hoffman is saying, "What can I do to like occupy my time because I'm so high energy? I'm going to go be chairman. <laughs> I'm going to go be chairman of Siftery." And he starts writing about vendor management. Of hmm. all the things you could write about, he starts to write about vendor management. How do you manage vendors? How do you spend cost effectively? How do you select vendors? All these ideas where it's like sort of like. If you think about vendor management, it's your like combination between a venture capitalist and someone at the beginning of their NBA season doing a draft. Or actually, does that analogy work? When when does a draft? I, dude, I don't watch sports. Oh, wait, when does the, a draft happen? What is it? Uh, spring? I don't know. Spring. Maybe. Okay, it's spring. You're <laughs> yeah. drafting, except that happens all year. You're constantly drafting your vendors. You're yeah. constantly letting vendors go. There's change management. 
this whole field of vendor management is totally nascent. Nobody really talks about it. There's no catalog you can read. There's no strategy website you can read about vendor management. Very, very ugly. Yeah. Super ugly. So when I hear you talking about all these different niches, I see some deals that you that you do sometimes. I'm like, that's a really niche deal. Like, obviously, there's a need for that. Is the TAM there? And the answer is almost always yes. The yeah. TAM is there. But I just wonder what your thoughts are on this essentially, like there's a, the deluge of software. There's the deluge of new companies. So if you think about the deluge of these new deals, what's really going on here is there's a deluge of new companies. Is there enough capital to support these companies? Probably because there's so much synergy and growth happening. Like it seems like all of this is actually just an ever expanding yeah. market. Like this is really actually what a industrial revolution sized situation going on in the world of software looks like. There's tons of new products. I want to adopt them all for my company. I can literally flip through. I run a podcast media business and I can literally flip through creator economy tools all day and say, say like, hmm. yeah, I want that in my company. Yeah, I want that in my company. Yeah, I want that in my company. I could magnify my cogs by 10 and perhaps grow my business by 10, but I don't actually know. There's some you know implementation issues, but it's all I'm trying to say is there's a sense of overwhelm that I have. This is probably going to be hmm. a theme in this conversation, but yeah, I, I don't even have a question here. I'm just, uh, this is why I like talking to you. And that's to see where it goes. Okay, there's definitely enough capital to support. It really feels like it. And then also too, you know, even like 10 years ago, I remember like uh, when I like started in venture, maybe even 15 years ago, like the stuff that we did, we did like software and e-commerce and apps. Now, <laughs> venture does like, buy like, you know, properties and stuff and outfit it with this for this management company or like, I know there's, there's so much more heavier CapEx stuff and it's so much bigger than it ever was before. There is an ever expanding TAM. The thing that I would say for software specifically, for founders, the thing that the worry that they should have on the ever expanding, you know, we see the deal flow. The deal flow is the stuff that they founders compete with. It is, are they able and capable to have sufficient product marketing and product marketing management chops to get to the top of the list? So that budget, when the budget conversation does happen at an enterprise or a user is starting to do it, like you meet them at the right time. That's the difficulty. This is actually why I think Siftery and G2 Crowd are like useful products because there's an overload. Like it's a shopping marketplace. I mean, G2, G2 Crowd with very qualified reviews, a shopping marketplace for, for software products. Man, that's not a niche, but think about like the lifetime value and the important implications that come from like buying software, who, which users, how, how to integrate. Oh, we're, we're expanding internationally. Going back to your very, very first point. Yeah, like it's rational towards leverage and towards operating leverage. That's what software enables people to do. And that's why everyone should be, not everyone. I think becoming a software developer, a software investor, being in this industry is like super like rewarding, fulfilling. You're like the builder of the future. And like, I, I have friends of mine that are really passionate, like artists and musicians, like not everyone needs to be a tech person. And I think there's a lot of that, like Kool-Aid you drink in the Silicon Valley, but yo, you guys just got to come here. Like, this is amazing, but it is pretty incredible. And so... Yeah, I'm really grateful that I started. And thanks to, you know, my mentor, the one who helped me and the way that maybe, I don't know if Oren's a mentor of yours, quote unquote, but someone who helped Distant you. Distant mentor. Yeah, but like uh, someone who helped you significantly. Mudragani. Mudragani, who's at, who founded Bond, Bond Capital with Mary Meeker, was at Kleiner before. Ooh. Yeah, he's great. He knew me when I was when I was 16 years old, when I had a faux hawk and I had Eurotrash t-shirts. And I was really just did not know what I was doing. And he helped me get my first internship. Look, at the time I was studying uh, physics. In university, and so I was going to do something. Wait, wait, different. you were in you were in college when you were sixteen. 
Oh, well, sorry. Like 18 is when I did my internship at, uh, at General Catalyst and what she helped me get. Okay. How did you find out about venture capital when you were like 16 or 18 or whatever? Thank you to my older sister. So my older sister, a real like impressive person. I was going to use, again, more profanity. I would say bad something. She's an incredible person. And she went to Stanford after taking a company public. And, you know, Indian immigrant family came. We came in like the 80s. She was born there. My brother's born there. My parents were born there. Me and my sister were born in Chicago. She let me sit in on her Stanford GSP class. And I just sort of showed up and started asking questions. And I like met one of some of her classmates and he just took an interest in me. And I think it's really, that's, that is the thing that, that pay it forward. You seem interesting. You seem cool. Like why not like help someone get to where they want to be? Like, that's what I live for. And that's what I bleed for. That's why I do this job. (laughs) Like, like for founders, like I get to go and see, see them and look, they might be not like, you know, cool kids, Stanford dropouts who like know everyone is every cool, like, you know, dinner party from this person or that VC or this operator. They might have came to this country and studied at Ben Gurion or Tsinghua University or IIT. They came when they're, you know, 35 years old and they have kids and, you know, they worked at a big company because that was the only place that would sort of have them and sponsor their green card. Like 80% of the founders that I back Uh, Jeff actually are like, are this profile, like they've had an exit either as a founder or as a founder, they're technical, or they were sort of engineering hire that's important. They're at a big company, they build something internally to solve a problem in a proprietary fashion. And they're definitely not like cool kid operators that like know the same people that some of us do. It is my desire. It's my dream. It's my hope to make sure that even though they might not be able to like access those networks or say things the same way, if they're capable, if they're capable and if they're good at what they can do and they can solve problems, they deserve money. They're deserving of capital. And so I'm really happy with my, the founders that I back and I'm going to do this for another 20, 30 years, maybe more. Love what you just said there. Let's talk about pre-seed a little bit. Hmm. I think pre-seed is basically the next frontier in venture investing. Mm-hmm. Agree? Yeah, definitely. Why? Why do you agree? I mean, first, like people are just seeing revenue a lot earlier. And so I think it was Wing. Wing does this like cool research report every year, like state of venture. And they look at like post-revenue, pre-revenue, by years, seed A, valuations, and like where it was before. Look, like seed companies have revenue and they used to not. <laughs> they used to be around sort of like series A and like everything is shifting before and just the cost to start a company as like, you know, so well, and so do I know, it's just so much cheaper. And so you have to get there sooner and quicker. And the, you know, the entry price, I mean, for a venture capitalist who's quantitative, the entry prices are really like interesting and exciting. I mean, you, we have opportunities to invest in companies at single digit millions or low double digit millions, and they can be a hundred billion dollar company in 10 years. Like how crazy is that? I love it. I mean, I, I focus on pre, like pre-seed. I'm a I'm the first check in maybe sixty percent of the portfolio companies. One of the first checks in the supercompute. Oh I yeah, I believe you might have been. Were you the first check? I think. Do we talk? We talked about that. Yeah, I think I, I think, I, I, think I was the second you, one. Yes, you were the second. First is Hasib Qureshi. Yeah, and very happy about it too, dude. It's gonna be amazing. Did you meet his, you haven't met Hasib yet? No, no, I want to. Hasib's the best crypto investor. The best? I'm saying it on air right now. Hasib's the best crypto investor. Really? The gauntlet has been dropped down. Oh yes, my God. 100%. Very He's cool. The best. Small little plug to Max Mersh, who I think is one of the best. But oh, really? I, but I know Hasib. Yeah, Max Mersh, I hired him. He has a firm called Fabric Ventures and uh, has just done so well. And I'll say like a lot of Web 3.0 stuff, Axie Affinity, so rare, is a crazy company. And there's so many more. Dude, I tried to mint my first NFT a couple of days ago. Oh, yeah. It's a nightmare. Is, it's hard? I couldn't figure out how to do it. 
I, I literally got I blocked and gave up. I, I actually messaged my friend who works at one of the NFT minting companies. And I said, can you walk me through this? Like, I felt like when my mom calls me and asks me to like set up iTunes for her. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> iTunes again. And I'm literally asking my friend to help me set up the NFT. That's funny. I, I guess the generational divide is quite clear there. Like, that's going to be the thing that like I'm very confused about when interacting with my kids is crypto. <laughs> I have not tried to yeah, mint an NFT mm. or if you do an NFT selfie, I'll buy it. I'll buy oh, it. Yeah? For, I'll buy it for an ETH. Oh, good. Really? I'd be so okay, honored. Maybe not an ETH. Yeah. That's a little much. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll talk so, about some, it. Fr- some do fraction. something a little more creative, and I'll buy it for an All right. ETH. A little All more right. creative. I, just I used, I used minimal to, creativity. I used to draw. I can. I can really? Yeah. A little bit sketching. Yeah, for sure. Um, hmm. Okay. Yeah. Draw something cool. All right. So NFTs basically a level up from proof of authority. So proof of authority. Let's say we have a digital version of Etsy. That digital version of it, or like completely digital Etsy where you can sell or, you know cool? or artsy. Isn't it awesome that we think of Etsy as like non-digital? Because yeah. it, we're just getting started. It, totally. Yeah. Well, okay, let's say artsy. Like artsy is a better yeah. example. So like digital artsy. Let's say you can just, I don't, maybe artsy already has this, but like let's say artsy where you can buy a JPEG. And basically you say artsy mediates the sales of JPEGs on its platform. When you buy, this is pre-NFT, you buy a JPEG. I can, Farouk Abbasi draws a picture of himself. Um, I buy it classic for, typical I buy it for 10 <laughs> for ten dollars on Artsy and Artsy says okay Jeff Meyerson owns the rights to Farouk Abbasi's sketch of himself I paid ten dollars for it they have a centralized like managed database where they can say who owns what piece of digital art from Artsy okay so you introduce the concept of NFT and you basically say okay we're basically saying instead of Artsy being the authority that rules over who has paid $10 for, for a selfie sketch of Farouk Abbasi, you're going from artsy to a blockchain. Hmm. And apparently by doing that, the potential price is magnified considerably just because we have gone from a centralized authority to a decentralized authority. Do you think this is a rational decision that the market has made or do you think it's irrational and it's eventually going to correct and NFTs, like the concept of an NFT is not going to inflate the price of art at all? Hmm. Really good question. So the shift just going to blockchain infrastructure in itself should not magnify the price of like an asset. What is nice about these things is that you can capture yield in like many interesting ways. I mean, so I'm a personal investor in a company called SoRare. So SoRare will basically NFT trading cards for for football teams, soccer teams. And like if N- NBA Top Shot sort of like the US leader for basketball and football and baseball, they'll do soccer and cricket and F1 and these types of things. There is a really healthy, strong economy around like the usage of these NFTs in a game, uh, in a game. So it's actually a fantasy card game. And so, yeah, I think there's more opportunities for transactions like in between sales. So if you think about just art traditionally and like Christie's, yeah, like you can go show at some museum or show it at some house and like get something. But this is just so much faster and it can show up in a lot of places. And the form factors are going to be better too. like think about like the future, like art frame, right? You'll be able to have like you know, the Mona Lisa and, you know, the NFT in your home for X number of days. And you're the only one in the world. Like these types of things are... Do they appeal to me on a personal deep level? Mm, maybe not, but I can see the value that uh, people can like. So I always believe that blockchain infrastructure, one of the larger good use cases would have been because of the network speed being so slow, high average order value, low transaction speed stuff, right. like real estate right. or artwork. Now, the transaction speed is getting a little bit better with things like Lightning and all these other projects, but 
yeah, it's an interesting, interesting market. And, and admittedly, it's not one that I, I spend a lot of time like investing in on, on like institutionally. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely something I have a uh, deep interest in. Do you do fintech at all? Oh, yeah. So Remitly is a company that will oh, hopefully- Oh, yes. Which will go public. Yeah. will go public hopefully pretty soon. I did the Series B in that one. And then Auto One, which is now public, it's at 10 billion, was kind of a fintech company. It's like a European CarMax. And then Truebill was probably the most, was, was another seed one I did and lively. Oh, we talked about Truebill. Yeah. So actually, short answer is yes. I actually, I love fintech. I think it's uh, super important. And exce- it's Can you just explain what Truebill is? Like both to give a shout out to your company and to explain a very cool product. Oh yeah, happily. So one of my favorite business models in the world is like free for user, charge the vendors. So kind of like Credit Karma. So what Truebill does, will go in a plaid type way, go through your bank accounts and analyze and see what are recurring purchases. Like I would get really pissed off when I would see like, why, what did I subscribe to? Some like idiotic magazine or why did this price increase? It'll notify those things. But for things like utility bills that you might have, say you're a Comcast subscriber or a T-Mobile subscriber, like you're a whale, right? Like if they keep you, if they keep you, Jeff, as like a Comcast customer for a long time, you're worth like, you know, maybe in your life, like hundred grand, not so bad, right? What Truebill will do, will automatically renegotiate those utility bill accounts and let you know like, hey, you could be saving money on this and we'll be as sort of a middleman person to negotiate that on a group basis for the users. And actually even the vendors get a little happy because think about like you, like you might move from, I don't know, like Yerba Buena to Harrison Street or something. That's an opportunity for churn. And so if Truebill is the intermediary and keeps you on the Comcast chain for a while, like Comcast is happy. So yeah, I'm really happy they closed, uh, I guess it's technically a Series C, uh, like a 500-ish million plus valuation, really capital efficient business, only like 20 or 30 people. And what's fun is actually it's one of the first companies that I've backed that like people really know about it. (laughs) Like they're like, oh, I love Truebill. I'm like, great. Very, very cool. And and good, good founding team. Three Iranian guys. They all had separate like successes. One was VP of Nanigans, which is like a performance marketing business. And the other two are co-founders of webs.com. So Harun and Yahia and uh, I'm forgetting the other brother's name, but it was fun. I actually met them in Austria randomly at a conference when I was living in Europe. I always wanted to invest in this type of business and that was the thing. I gave my point of view about all the other subscription management companies and the opportunities for monetization. And it didn't feel like a conversation. It feel it felt like we were like falling in love, <laughs> you know, like, okay, cool. Like I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I hope I interview them, them at some point. I, we should make that happen. Oh, definitely. I, yeah. I'd really like to talk to them because I have all these implementation questions about it, mm. but coming back to pre-seed. Okay. So pre-seed. So I think I told you a little bit about on deck, my experience with on deck. So on mm-hmm. deck was really cool. You know, on deck, you know, yeah, on yeah. Deck? I was an on deck. I was part of the first angel fellowship. Okay. Yeah. Did you have to pay for that one? Yes. Yes, it was. And then they were, they were nice. They give scholarships and stuff and free, but I was happy. What, what do you pay for it? What does it cost? I believe, I don't know. If, hopefully it's public, <laughs> but I don't mind saying it. Sorry, it sorry range, Eric. Put a range. Uh, it, was, it was five grand. I okay, so it. five grand. So yeah. five grand, how many people were in the... With Maybe cohort? 20 or 30. And like really impressive people like Justin Kahn, Josh Elman from Greylock. Wow. Yeah, like good crew people. Interesting. So like a Justin Kahn paid 5,000. Uh, I'm not sure we if, don't he, know. if we don't he paid, know. but like he showed up. Was in there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Interesting. Yeah. And we'd have cool, like little, like kind of group sessions and chats. What I love about that business is I just, I want to know more about how it actually works. 
but I think about like, so they spin up all these on decks, right? Like they spin up on deck adventure, right? And it's like, oh, for sure. I, I almost even giggle, honestly, I even giggle a little bit when I get these emails, like on deck, design this, that, whatever, right, or like, right. on deck, whatever. I'm like, oh my God, like there's like, yes. there's like factions for every kind of person. It's it's amazing. <laughs> but I think they're doing it right. I think actually their model is so pioneering and they're so far ahead of anything else that's anything remotely like, except maybe Reforge. I don't know much about Reforge. Mm. Reforge is like the only major competitor te- technically right or yeah like no, maybe yc and i feel like it's more oriented towards like i guess growth marketing for, for reforge so like if you think Brian of Brian belfour saying yeah if you think of on deck as a category what else is in that category is there oh, anything god okay you know what maybe it would be ypo young presence or, or sorry oh yeah yeah but like, may- like maybe that right but not in the same way that's like educational distributed catching people at the right time, putting people in touch with one another. I'm happy it exists. I know people have like different points of view on it. Like I'm really happy that it exists. And I love, I made a couple of new friends in, during On Deck Angels. Right. So for me, my On Deck Miami experience was totally transformative. That was like, you know, you saw me during the pandemic. I was having a really hard time. Hmm. I went to On Deck Miami. It was awesome. It was like literally awesome. Very, yeah. very useful kind of an inflection point for my life. Very, very valuable. Yeah, and, that, and, and now you eat like Cubano sandwiches all the time. and Totally. You know? Yes, it's basically... You have a, kind of a, you have a Miami kind of Spanish yeah, accent. So you, <laughs> absolutely. So I went through a genetic alteration that some <laughs> Miami folks go through. It's experimental. You know, it's like a combination of, you know, the blood... What is it? Blood baby? What's the thing where you get the blood transfusion? <laughs> so it's like a combination blood, blood baby... Blood boy. Blood boy. It's a blood boy program together blood with... Blood baby is pretty extreme. Blood, yeah, it's disgusting <laughs> oh, so it's like a man. blood boy based approach there's a little cryogenic routine they pull on you and that's what on deck miami is basically and it takes place at winwood hmm. at a co-working space the cryogenics is closer to the the beach but the thing is like this is the pre-seed so the pre-seed thing is you have on deck and then your village global and village global serves as this big filter potential i mean this is what i imagine this thing becoming is essentially like you have on deck here and then you have village global here and then, you know, Village Global is, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, and sure. then gradually the two things become closer Eric's and closer friend. and closer yeah. and closer and closer. And then until you basically have like, you know, essentially like you basically have a venture capital stack attached to a university. Mm-hmm. And so basically like at literally all areas of the ideation to mature company life cycle on deck slash Village Global has something to offer you. That's what I find really interesting about where they're headed with that. Oh, yeah. And I feel like they are going to have basically the first grabs at industrialized pre-seed. If anybody else can do industrialized pre-seed, I'd hmm. love to know. But like pre-seed at industrialized scale, who else can do that? Kind of Y Combinator. Y Combinator is a little too exclusive at this point. You know, it was an interesting example that's doing it in an institutionalized way is Entrepreneur First. So I was actually in, indirectly an investor in this company via a former fund. You, do you know of EF? Have you heard of EF Never before? Actually, I think I have seen that acronym. Mm-hmm. So, so they're based in London, but they have they have cohorts in Germany, London, Singapore, all over the place. You go there as an individual, and you don't even have to have a company or an idea, but you take. I just want to be an entrepreneur. They match you up with a founder, and they will give you cash and accelerate you, but like. It is like, it's truly like talent investing. And what I'm, what I'm happy about is like some of the, I think some people viewed that model of like, wow, like you just show up, like don't even have an idea. You don't even know who your co-founder is. Like this is not going to work. They had some really interesting kind of like acquire-ish type companies initially, but Tractable, Acurex, Tractable is a billion dollar company now. Just like applied computer vision for like automotive car repairs. Acurex is like kind of a, a GP healthcare communications company. So that's the only other one that I can think of, which is 
interesting and different and pure, like pure play talent investing. I guess maybe first rounds trying to do things like this too with their community and customer discovery introductions uh, early on. And me and me and Brett Burson talk about this sometimes. Really good guy, but it's still the market's so big. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, you know, we talk about the software market so big, the venture market's still so big. There's so much more. There's so much more to do. Because honestly, think think about your friends who are like in pre seed land and that they want to start a company. Do you think they have like all the resources they need? to like be successful and happy or do they still have questions even with all the blogs and all the people and all the vcs out there like it's still still imperfect all the people are you talking about the people who are raising pre-seed? founders yeah. founders who are raising pre-seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah but still, they still don't know yeah so many things yeah what i wonder is what's the where does this lead so what is the minimum screening criteria here's what i find interesting there's all these really good business ideas that basically if you found the a credible founder with business idea X, it would take like $2,500 in startup capital for the founder to validate that idea. And if you are the person to give them $2,500, you're definitely going to be the first person they go to when they're looking for Mm $10,000 or when they're looking for a million dollars. Nobody's offering the $2,500 check, right? Who's offering the $2,500 first check? I mean, that's friends and family right now, which is fine. But ideally, yeah. it's like on deck has like the $2,500 coupon thing that you can redeem if you've got a good startup idea at the end of on deck. That's a great idea. You should mention it to them. Does this exist? The $2,500 coupon? Yeah. You say coupon, so it makes me think that it doesn't exist because there has to be a better I don't term think for it this. exists. I just like the <laughs> idea of like... Your... Here's my, I'm going I'm to I'm cash in my founder's coupon, please. Yeah, founder's coupon. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it exists yet. So your, your question was around like, what's the minimum diligence i guess diligence or how does i don't know what the question is like Hmm. what i'm observing is like one of the most glaring market inefficiencies that remains yeah as things get competed competed away i can tell you that so with preface we have 100 percent distributed uh sourcing and so i have unpartners who are lps who are also investors which we catch up and catch up with quarterly who we help on stuff and then one point which i think you'll like or at least be interested in. I built an algorithmic sourcing engine called Klarman as an ode to Seth Klarman, the value investor. Margin of safety. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my man. Exactly. So we track about 10,000 people right now and various like online behaviors and personal attributes and who they are. And there's some fun introduce. Uh, um, so it doesn't make the decision for me, but it actually scores people based on some characteristics that are pre- that predispose people to entrepreneurial successes. I've highlighted some of this before, but like if you come from Oracle, Oracle has more billion dollar companies that are built from their alumni than any other place, which is pretty amazing. If you're a VP, if you created some value as a founder, uh, you know, a five figure or six figure exit, 50 to 150 million bucks, you're like two or three times more likely to build the billion dollar company next time versus someone who is a first time founder on average, by the way, I'll highlight these are all on average, or someone who's built a billion dollar company then because maybe they had they're too much comfort and now they're too successful. What was their title? Did they get promoted when they were when they were acquired by the firm the, by you know, in their current sort of situation? Did they stay there for a year and get pissed off and leave, or did he or she stay there for seven or eight years and then continue and get promoted? Promoted. All these things are sort of predisposed features for like ML features for entrepreneurial successes. I gave you like six or seven. There's about forty five of them. And again, it doesn't make the decision, but if you know what you're looking for. That at least helps start the conversation. And then like, what, what does that conversation look like? It's more of like a technical roadmap product discussion. Then it's a little bit of like, inter- in my opinion, like interviewing people for characteristics that are critical, like 
grit, self-awareness, resourcefulness, kindness and compassion too. You know, not everyone needs to be like a angry entrepreneur, right? And yeah, like, like for us in our diligence process, we'll often introduce two or three different kind of customer prospects in the meantime. But it's even, I'll even just being intellectually honest, it's hard to do that in today's age too, where like the time horizons for making a venture capital decision are, are much, much shorter. And so I probably spend more time one-on-one with the founder in a series of like, I'll talk to them on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Thursday and a Friday. And then probably by like Saturday or Sunday, I'll like kind of know, and then I'll, uh, I'll want to invest. Can I share an experiment that I ran a few, a few, Let's hear a few years ago? Okay, so I ran this experiment. So two and a half years ago, I'm running Software Engineering Daily. Podcast ad sales are doing really well. I'm trying to spin up this company, Find Collabs. My idea was like the Quora for projects. Like, don't, don't oh, worry cool. about it. It was a cool idea. We don't need to talk about that now. But at the same time, I was starting to get into investing a little bit mm-hmm. more, starting to make some personal investments. And... I interviewed this guy about the subject of crypto jacking. Do you know crypto jacking? Have you ever heard that term? Yeah, you basically take compute resources and yeah. do mining. Yeah. Yeah. So like imagine you have a rogue Chrome extension and the Chrome extension is mining Bitcoin in your browser. This is one of like I was a first investor in Redlock, which Paul Oates and I was bought for a couple hundred million bucks. This is one of their first use cases. Okay. It happened on the corporate level. Dude, it happens everywhere. Yeah. Basically every place you have a spare compute cycle, somebody's trying to crypto jack it from you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy. Anyway, so there was this guy who wrote a blog post about crypto jacking. He was from South America, some young kid. He was like 17 or 18 and maybe even 16. He's pretty, he was very young. So he wrote this blog post about crypto jacking. I brought him on for an interview and he was just very sharp. Immediately after the interview, I said, look, I don't, I don't care what you're building. I want to invest in it. I think this is really interesting. You're clearly very, very cool. You're very knowledgeable about crypto jacking. This seems like a nascent area. Do you want to build a product in this space? And he's like, yeah, I already am building a product. He starts hmm. working on crypto jacking. And I said, okay, how much, like, I don't have very much money. Like, what's the minimum I can invest? Can I put in $5,000 or two two twenty five hundred bucks? And yeah. And he said, yeah, well, let's do like 6250 for some reason. He said 6250 <laughs> Okay, sure. 6250 Wire it straight to your bank account. He starts sending me investor updates. I'm his, I think I was, I was the only investor in this situation. Actually, no, no, no. He was also an accelerator. So he's going through the process. And by the way, this is not at all critical of anything that he did because he managed his money and managed his, his experience as an entrepreneur, certainly no worse than I have. But throughout that process, he pivoted from crypto jacking to marketing tools hmm. and then from marketing tools back to something in crypto and then from crypto back to something in marketing tools. And he went back and forth and back and forth. And I very quickly realized, okay, if you're trying to do pre-seed, this is going to be a common failure mode where basically you have somebody who pivots into oblivion. They don't feel enough conviction about their idea or they're like kind of early. Because like an entrepreneur, every entrepreneur goes through a different journey. Is your first idea the thing that you're going to work on for the rest of your life? For some entrepreneurs, it absolutely is. Yeah, They know their mission. They know what God endowed them with to build. But other people are just like, yeah, I'm in it for the money or I'm in it for the fun or I'm in it for the hustle and I'm just looking for my idea and I'm pivoting from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. Yeah. All I'm really looking for is that operational you know, smoothness where I can recruit a team and raise money and things are going to go well and then I'm going to exit and then I'm going to go do my next thing. That's fine. There's Those are different sides of the spectrum. And I think this guy kind of hadn't really figured out what his startup ideation bake the pie in the oven framing was. And so he pivoted into oblivion. But that said, I would bet on him again in a heartbeat. If he came to me and said, I've got a new, I've got a new idea, I would say, that's great. I've got some more capital. Like, let's do it. Yeah. So I think I know what we're getting to. There has to be some like 
math and like like we still operate in like a profit driven like you have to keep the lights on right for the endowments for the nonprofits for the like for the LPs to the GPs who pay need to pay their salaries and so forth but there's probably some like mathematical function that like works where there's a small enough amount of money which is yeah almost like part educational or part like just like purely risk driven where you it's like are, a grant yeah it's a grant it's an entrepreneurship a, grant totally it's an entrepreneurship grant and like it'd be pretty amazing if universities had had this as a oh my god like, that would be that would be a godsend yeah i guess in europe that I mean people are a little bit more flexible with this but in the u.s like not so much i mean i think if like th- how many friends of yours in college just like stopped and came back with the support of, of their school Stop! Like like halted for a little bit. Yeah, and like then like, came like back. halted being a student. Dude, and like, I did that. Okay, you did that. How many yeah. pe- how many people are, are like you? I mean, probably I don't know a fourth of the people I know or the fifth of the people I know. Like you're, that's awesome. Is, that's like, that, that, you're, great, you're you're around the right people. Like, then. Dude, college yeah. is a great place to have some kind of existential crisis or health crisis or whatever, and like hmm. stop out for a little bit and go through that experience and like. Yeah, tons of people go through that. Yeah, for for me, I, my my experience would be like less so. Like, I don't know that many people where like in their university, they, the dean would be like, "Oh, great! Like, you want to just like stop and work at like some company for a year? Like, sounds good. Like, we'll we'll be here when you get." Oh, back. you're talking about working at a company for a little bit? Yeah, or like oh, something okay. like something along like along those lines. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, like that that doesn't happen nearly sure. as much. Apprenticeship or trade school kind of thing. doesn't. That's what Waterloo does, right? Yeah, Waterloo does Waterloo that. Waterloo systematizes like, that, and European schools do. It, and I think it's a really, really, really good thing. Something like what I'm doing when with preface is like there's some there's a version of this where i'll go and give half a million bucks for for someone who had built something internally at a big company that's in the thesis area that i care about and like i'm passionate about and to say like hey like leave your job i will be with you we haven't done that just yet but like there's one or two folks right now which actually arguably yeah it's uh it's happening like as we speak you know I want to break you out of jail. <laughs> like, that's what yeah. I want to do. That's what I want to do. I want to break these people out of jail yeah, to like, yeah, yeah. enable them to like build for themselves. And like, sup- they'll surprise, and they'll surprise themselves and they'll surprise others. Cause it's so crazy. Sometimes you don't even know how good you are or how good. Well, that's for sure. Yeah. If you, unless, but you just have to put yourself in the right environment, right? People can believe in you, you know, people can believe in you. And if, if you just find the right match. So that's actually, I think probably the thing that attracted me. So I started listening to this week in startups, the Jason Calacanis program hmm. in college and this was a senior year, so it's senior year of college. I have no idea what venture capital is. I know nothing about private investing. I was just looking for what podcasts are available. I found Seth Godin's Startup School, and I found This Week in Startups. Wow, good for you. Did you ever listen to Seth Godin's I listened to show? This Week in Startups. I did not listen to Seth Godin's one. Okay. No, but like, how many years ago was this? This was in college, senior yeah. year. I'm totally floundering. I'm barely passing my classes. I'm extremely depressed. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. You know, I'm like about to go work at a corporate job. I don't really want to work at a corporate job. I'm, I'm like wondering what has gone wrong with my life to go into this trajectory. Oh, man. And I found This Week in Startups. I found Seth Godin's Startup School. And it was kind of the first glimmer of like, oh, there's actually a viable creative reality out there for me that I would want to engage in. Hmm. Viable creative reality. I like that. Which is amazing because, you know, I was in one of the top 10 computer science schools in in the United States. I hadn't really been exposed to the concept of entrepreneurship or even really creativity as applied to to computer science. Really, my only notions of computer science were this is an art that is used to serve your corporate masters. Hmm. What do you think is missing when you were in that situation? So, and I hear you, you like, you found some resources via podcast, but like, what do you wish you had more of? Did you in like college? Yeah. Like, is there, is there something like encouragement? A, Ah. This is what's this is like one of the bigger problems with the United States is we basically have like a, an epidemic of apathy. 
hmm. or epidemic of apathy or cynicism. Yeah. Where it's very, there's a, and I've, I've fallen victim to this, of course, like I, during, certainly during the pandemic, I kind of was afflicted by a deep, deep sense of cynicism hmm. and pessimism. So I understand that basically you get trapped in mental loops sometimes that put you in a pessimistic nature. And that's really, that's a fundamental problem of human nature. And it's something we have to solve at a societal level or it's like, and by a societal or societal or cultural or anthropological level where you say, yeah. look, it is one of the jobs of the groups of people that we are within to lift up people who have been sort of trapped into some sort of negative mental loop. Because ultimately that's all it is. It's a negative mental loop and we can help release you from it if we give you the right, whatever, neuro-linguistic programming or something. Hmm. Like that's what I find so interesting about podcasts. Podcasts is you're choosing your neuro-linguistic programming, basically. Nice. I get you now. Right? I get you even more. That's podcasting to me is passive neurolinguistic programming and you get to choose who you i mean more you get or less to choose. you get to choose like this is why an entrepreneurship is awesome like this too right because you get to choose who to work with like yeah it's amazing <laughs> like you never need to you can be and build and create like your ride or die army of people totally with you forever and it's your choice man that's you yeah <laughs> likewise man likewise likewise i'm pumped too i can't wait so how good is it that this is putting things very bluntly, but how good is it that we're in a business where we can essentially make economic arrangements that keep each other's best interests in mind? So mm-hmm. like back when I played poker, I used to play poker very, very, very seriously. I learned that recently and I look forward to, but I'm also scared when we play hold them together. We'll have to do it. I'm just going to act very chaotic. Well, no, you're an investor. In, <laughs> dude, you're an investor in supercompute. We're going to play supercompute together. Sounds good. Can't poker, wait. Poker's a thing of the past. Supercompute's yeah, yeah. where it's at. <laughs> so we'll play supercompute in our own casinos. That'll be very cool. Which will be airships. So we'll be flying around playing, <laughs> playing in our casinos. Sounds like the future of the future of the future. Yeah. So back when I played poker, so there's this thing in poker. So poker's like super hyper individualistic, right? You're literally, there's no team poker. I mean, there is. There's been televised team poker. It's ridiculous, but it's not a real thing. How? How so? I mean, I, I, it does not even go into it. Okay, it's cool. It's just dumb. But basically, the way that you form teams in poker is through staking systems. Hmm. I mean, you st- people stake each other. There's also training sites. Training sites create a loose affiliation, but you stake each other. I say, look, I'm going to take, let's swap 30%. Farouk, I think you're a great tournament player. I'm a great tournament player. Tournaments are high variance. We're firing a 25K bullet. Into- we, pl- we play differently. We yeah. play differently. It's kind of a hedge yeah, yeah. in that notion. And you have somebody to root for, right? Yeah. So like, that's what I love about venture at the level that we're at, where we're basically, okay, look, we've not, and I don't even mean like level, like we've leveled up. I just mean we've been in the industry long enough to have a little bit of a proven track record. Yeah. We can say to each other, like, Farouk, I promise you that when I have the capital, actually, I'm at the point now, I would love to be an LP. Like, as soon as I can be an LP, I'll be <laughs> an LP. Yeah. And you can say, I'm going to invest in your company. And then we're like, high five, let's go to dinner and root for each other. Yeah. Which like, how many places in life- In our economy. In your economy, can you genuinely know somebody's rooting for you? Yeah. Like your parents, kind of, your friends from childhood, and who else? Like- That's really it. It's a shark tank. Yeah. Man, we're so lucky. You're making me feel really, really grateful. We're in an excellent place. What's good too is like- the upside of these things are so, if you're purely economic and rational, like rational, 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 the upside of these things are so big, but it depends how you quantify what is upside. Like, I actually love learning. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, I'm, I can't wait to like learn more about like this industry or sub industry, like your type of 
product and solution and the problems that you're going to have and how you're going to communicate. And I'll learn more about you too, like how you're going to communicate, like, you know, issues, concerns that you have, things that you can, you know, push through things you'll need help with. It's so, it's like one of the most like fun and fascinating parts of like the human condition is like putting yourself through a challenge. And I love it. <laughs> you want to know like how much I love this type of like individual sort of hero or heroine story. Tell me about it. You know, the movie that I watch when I'm sad, Ooh, when, um, I, when I want to get inspired. Let me think about it. Um, when I want an inspiration. Not Great Gatsby. Not Great Gatsby. Let me think. Inspiration. The founder? No, oh, that's, that's a good answer. The Revenant. What's The Revenant? I haven't seen that Oh, one. with Leonardo DiCaprio? It's excellent. Is that a vampire movie? No. <laughs> oh, no, that's the one where he's like, he has to fight a bear, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to fight the bear, he's but in, he's he in definitely Arctic, fights. He's in some Arctic scenario. Yeah, He yeah. gets left for dead and he fights his way back. I got to watch this. Based on a true story. Oh, my God. I got to watch this. Okay, that's oh, the first thing I'm writing down. Oh, it's, it's excellent. Such a good movie. It's based on a true story. A guy basically like crawled literally crawled after being mauled by a bear so it's, it's based on true true story yeah like hundreds of miles right. and like uh and got like revenge and retribution and right. the, and the, the revenant like literally the word literally means like someone who's like risen from the dead most people when i say that they're like you're weird <laughs> like you're you're weird no like, i get it I no because it it's like the human experience like that's why we're here i just that's why i want to be in service of like, it makes me happy it makes like it fills me fills me up with joy Listen, man, I went broke twice. I went broke playing poker once. I went broke doing mm. Adverprise once. Adverprise was my first software business. Yeah, you told really me about bad that business. I've been broke twice. You come back from that, and, and then COVID also. The COVID was pretty bad. Yeah. And I'm like upper middle class human being. So I've had every cushion in the world, and I still feel kind of like that Revenant guy. So I know that there's all these people in the world that basically, if they get you know, KO'd, they don't really have a cushion. Yeah. So that's how you know there's still a lot of alpha oh, waiting yeah. to be created that we can help create by cushioning these sorts of people. Definitely. For like institutionalizing pre-seed and just making like risk-seeking behavior like safe. Normative. Normative. Yeah. I love risk. Risk is yeah. the best. Like it is so, so fun. W- yeah. Were you born in India? Oh, uh, no. I was, I was born in Chicago. Okay. You're born in Chicago. Yeah. Um, Me and my sister were born in Chicago and then the other four parents and other two siblings were born in India. Okay. India is still risk averse, right? Culturally, is that changing? It's changing a lot more now, but man, there is a huge association with like where you went to school, you went to like the IITs or like what job you have or in some ways it's such a beautiful culture and I'm so happy that I'm I'm Indian, but it's a little bit materialistic in the old school way. I even I even saw Germany. Germany was like this too, sort of pre-rocket internet. It's like okay, you went to like mm. you went to like WHU or TUM, you know, Technical University of Munich, and then you went to McKinsey, and then afterwards, like, what happens next? Like hedge fund or this, that, whatever. Now then, rocket internet came in, and and in some ways, actually, maybe that's an example of of someone who maybe imperfectly, but in, you know, Zalando exists and all these other like really impressive companies exist because they take all these smart people and they gave them risk, like a safe space to operate and to be risky and to start creating companies. India is in a similar situation. I would say now what's nice though, is you have kind of the classic base level companies like Paytm and Gojek. Uh, yeah. Gojek. And I guess, um, I don't know how, how uh, Ola Cabs is doing. And what's a cart? Uh, Flipkart, Flipkart, Flipkart. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like that's happening, and like now, what's nice is like they're just. I, I mean, I have such, I have such a strong bias. It's one of my bad biases. There's a strong bias towards towards Indian people. I think that entrepreneurial ecosystem is going to explode and continues to oh, explode. Oh, for sure. Such good people and like humble and yes. hardworking and like very English speaking. 
oh man, let's do Strengths Finder for different nationalities. Okay, so we got so, so what's Strengths <laughs> Finder? By the way, this this could get very dangerous very fast. Oh, uh, you're right. Okay, it's we, shouldn't, super, we shouldn't do this. this. Is we shouldn't do this. Hyper this is a bad idea. This is a really bad idea. This is a terrible idea. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. All right, cancellation yeah. one, like evaded. <laughs> Needless to say. I love immigrants. Like, I love hanging out with immigrants. Oh, yeah. I love feeling like, okay, my ancestors were immigrants. We, we happened to be, like, earlier to the trip. Yeah. And I'm sort of like, all right, other immigrants are coming ashore. I'm, like, pulling them ashore. I'm like, hey, come ashore. Like, you know, you do you need anything? Like, do you need resources? Do you yeah. need to help build you your house? Like, I'm here for you. We're building this thing together. Like, we're building this America thing together. Yep. I'm starting to get that sense. Like, I'm starting to get the whole notion of being prideful about America and, like, what's special about America. And I like that you say that, prideful about America, which is inclusive of people who are on the outside of it. Because yeah. there is a, there is a faction that it does exist in the United States where there's some there's some there's some anti-immigrant sentiment. I mean, just even most recently, the thing that like kind of scared me and worried me. I have plenty of Asian American friends. San Francisco, man. Like I saw these these like Twitter tw- these videos on Twitter and stuff where just people are just like beating people. Sounds sounds oh, that stuff's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That was partially COVID insanity though. That's that's I thought that got overblown. That's COVID insanity. Yeah, terrible. And hopefully, like it's uh, resolved and hopefully. Chase Boudin does a better job. It's a weird. He's a weird, dude. Why is he? Because he's like the an anti meme. He's like you show your part of this. Like <laughs> you show your part <laughs> of like the legion of Silicon Valley 4.0 <laughs> by saying you don't like Chase Boudin. Yeah, we're, we're, it's the ultimate signal. What's, what's the other very famous podcast? Uh, all in. Yeah, all in. The best podcast. I love it so much. By the way. So by the way, I, <laughs> this this week I'm like, or last week I was slacking the team of software engineering daily. I was literally saying. We have a hair on fire situation. There's going to be an all in of software. Like there will be an all in of software. Oh, cool. If there hasn't already been one, there will be one. Like, I mean, this is literally like thing, something that's consuming me because like, like what are the existential threats to software engineering daily? Like definitely one of them is all in for software, just eating my lunch. Yeah, yeah, fine. Which is part of why I'm like having you on here and like wearing an outrageous costume because I'm like, what can I do to compete with all in? Like I basically <laughs> try to be more outrageous than them. There could be like an all all star cast that gets assembled of like people that are equivalent. So I bought alloutpodcast.com. Oh really? So I might do the all out <laughs> podcast. You're so forward thinking. That's why you're going to be a good entrepreneur. Do you want to do are, it? You're a good entrepreneur. Do you want to do it? You I'm, could do I'm, it. I'll, 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 you should do it. I'll jump down this. I'll I'll go down this rabbit right. hole with you. That's a verbal agreement. <laughs> no, but actually, what would the equivalent be? Like Friedberg, like maybe like some guy from like the Berkeley Rise Lab who's like the academic. Yeah, professor. Jan Stoika. It's sure. like Jan Stoika. Who else is on the All Out podcast? Well, who would be the sax equivalent of like the... Martin you know. Casado. Oh, yeah. He's great. He's great. Or or Mike Vol- It's Mike Volpe, Martin Casado, Jan Stoika, and... You need to have one like pure play open source person, which is why I think Volpe would be a good choice. Definitely. Or JJ. Have you met JJ? Oh, I have. Yeah, from OSS, OSS Fund. Capital. Yeah, 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 yeah. That could be a good one, too. And then what's Chamath's equivalent? Ooh, Chimot- I mean... JJ, I hate to say JJ, but JJ might be the Chamath. <laughs> JJ, he's a good friend. Shout out to JJ, like one of my favorite investors, invested in my companies. So JJ might be the Chamath. Friedberg is the who? Friedberg is... So, so, someone from academic professor, pure play, oh, compute. Oh, right. Friedberg is, is Jan Stoika. Wait, but who's Jason Calacanis? Ah, it could be you. Maybe. Or Harry Stebbings. Oh, no, sure. not Harry Stebbings. He's, he's not really infra guy. Right? Yeah, and he's pretty, so pretty. Who's the, who's the infra? Oh, data engineering guy, maybe. Data engineering podcast guy, Tobias Macy, maybe. Oh, sure. That could work. That could work. Yeah, yeah I got um, it. Anyway, I mean, <laughs> I, I want to see this, right? So this is the thing. I've been talking to like my podcaster friends. I'm like, I'm trying to tell everybody. I'm like, I feel like chicken little, literally. Yeah. I'm running around. I'm like, 
listen, the two person interview, I was telling Eric Torenberg this, I was, li- he's not listening to me. He's like, or he, he actually, he was listening to me, but I was telling him, we got to do something about this. Like literally look, you guys, I don't know if you got the memo. The two person podcast is dead. It's yeah. dead. Like in its current form, it's dead. The Joe Rogan experience, like is a thing of the past now. Hmm. The all-in format has proven, it's not that the all-in format has proven that, like, four-person, roundtable, like, non-format, or non, non-directional, non like, sort of like, you know, we're going to explore what, as we go along. It's not that that format is the new end-all, be-all. It's what they have shown is that there is an entire panoply of formats that are available like, because in the past, like, basically for all of podcasting, it's kind of been, like, roughly two sorts of things. You either have two-person interview format or you have some sort of highly produced thing. Like, hmm. the highly produced thing is, like, the NPR or Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or The Moth or This American Life yeah, or yeah. Startup Podcast. Like, all these things are sort of highly produced. You have the highly produced thing and then you have, like, the two-person interview thing and then you kind of have, like, the panel sort of thing, like the H3 podcast but really what the all in podcast showed is that actually there's a whole suite of other directions. Like the thing that I was thinking about is like, you know, Jay and silent Bob. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so like, yes. imagine, imagine <laughs> if we were doing this podcast and like silent Bob was also here. <laughs> so it's like once, awesome. once during the podcast, silent Bob is going to, is going to chime in with a one liner <laughs> and you know, it's coming the whole time yeah. and you're just waiting for it and you're just listening you're washing your dishes and you're just like waiting for silent Bob to chime in. Like you, you've decided you're going to turn off the podcast as soon as silent Bob chimes in. It's just like, (laughs) that's what the all in podcast is. It's represents this panoply of new formats that are unexplored. All of the two person interview formats, like my traditional style has basically been disrupted. Yeah. And it's, it's more inclusive, but also too, if you think about the limitations of the two person, by the way, I've listened to many podcasts, including yours with two people like exceptional, but like, it's hard for one person within like not, two people within 90 minutes to encapsulate like the range, like even like, like the range of like, a, like an all in podcast of so like scientific, academic, like ethos, pathos, logos, like really like balanced way of doing arguments. It's hard for one person to do it. It's challenging. And also somehow, some way, I think disagreeing is easier, larger in groups. So let's say like, you know, those guys can disagree with one another. If you and I were disagreeing right now, like, it, you know, I'm sure we'd be fine, <laughs> but it can get like because it's just sort of back to back and forth one-on-one and there's no like buffer, I think because of the setting, it's like harder, harder to pull off. Yeah. We should do it, man. I think it's a good idea. Think about it. Yeah. It is a good idea. Well, anyway, I love this, man. I've, I've really, really enjoyed being, being here today. Yeah. yeah, Super fun. Let's see how much, how much time we got. Yeah. We could do like one or two more things. Oh yeah. Like we could wrap up or we can talk a little bit more. No, 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 no. no. We we can talk more. Let's talk a little bit more. Let's talk full stack investor strategy and portfolio construction you raised the 23 million dollar fund i want to know what your strategy has been both at a high level and in terms of implementation and any like key decisions along the way key decisions and key learnings yeah sure so 23 million dollar fund the goal is to have about 20 portfolio companies it's like religion, like you can be Jewish, atheist, Christian, whatever you want to be, as long as you're a good person, you're a good person. Reserves are important. So for me, they are. I will actually do 55% reserves to 45% entry. So I'll do a first check, then I'll do a larger second check in companies. And then the area of focus, as I think I might have highlighted, like the founder profile and someone who's like the unsung hero that I really like love and I'm like, I have an affiliation to 
is this like repeat founder, ex-VP of product or platform engineer or infrastructure who maybe build something internally in like, I don't know, data governance at a large company like LinkedIn or Oracle or actually my, my one of my more, my first investment in preface to was a company called Strata, which is Oracle's global identity and security officer, the founder of Jump Cloud, and then the first VP of identity at Salesforce, building a new way to do distributed identity. They're in Denver. They're not like not not again Stanford cool kid people, but they have had exits and success, and they're they're worth their salt, and that's all that's really required. So, investing in those you know eighteen to twenty ish companies, my average check has been around four hundred thousand dollars. I've sized up the last two or three, just maybe it's a sign of more confidence, but also more of what the companies actually need early on with enterprise infrastructure. I don't know if you if you see this too. The round size is just bigger. You just need senior people. Like I'm not like the kind of person who's like going and trying to you know take 10% for a 250k of a, in a company in Atlanta just because that can be like predatory. Yeah, dude, that stuff is so dumb. People are still trying to do that well, stuff. Well, people do it by LPs like it, and there's so many people who are like, oh, like I back this GP and I made a good decision because this GP can basically find some like totally gem company and like give and them money. Them. Yeah, kind of. And then the thing is, the too is like you want people to have equity at the end. Like it's enough. <laughs> like it is enough for me to take anywhere between I don't know two and like five or even six percent of ownership for the kind of checks I just I just described, and like not have it be like a twenty five or thirty percent dilution event like for a seed round or even you know I kind of like to see dilution events go from you know teens you know double digit likely in like in like seed. A is like 20 and then hopefully the B has gone so well and the company has gone so well that like you, it scales down over time. And the founder hopefully has, you know, like they're like Drew Housen, I had 25% of Dropbox at exit. Did you really? Yeah. Like, so like, and there's, there's other examples of this too. Like that's what you kind of want. And I want that for my founders and my people. Random question. How much do you think the Collison zone? Oof. Man, they've done a good job. I don't know. I could find out, but I don't know if I'll get in trouble for it. <laughs> But it's what an incredible company. Irish Irish guys, man. Two Irish guys. And Be careful. What? Oh, can't, sorry. We, <laughs> we talked can't, to you. Can't do racial segmentation. <laughs> yeah, we can't. Even though I'm really proud of... Oh, how about this? I mentioned two Irish guys because it's one of the most impressive and important companies around. And they were funded... You know, if you hear them talk, they sound different, look different, think yeah, different, act different. Definitely. They feel, they're just... that The whole company is different. Yeah. Really, really pleased about it. Sorry, we totally strayed from portfolio construction. I don't care. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> what year does Stripe overtake Amazon as the Ooh. world's most highest market cap company? And because I'm saying that because Amazon will be the highest market cap company when Stripe overtakes them. Mm, okay, so on an economics basis, well, if you're operating, so payments versus like, okay, what's the most, the best part of the Amazon, Amazon business is AWS. I think it contributes to like, 60% of like free cash flow for that whole organization that actually, even though like Stripe, like from a payment processor and gateway has like a better margin structure because there's less CapEx for it to operate internationally and to expand internationally just takes time. Payments businesses are slow, like at scale, they grow like 40, 60, 80% a year. Square was a real exception early on because they found a segment of like shopkeepers and people and they gave hardware on the phone and like basically enabled a whole new economy. When will it happen? I think it's going to take a long time. So even though I think the business model is cleaner for Stripe and people love the product and it's like really amazing, I think it'll take a while. I think maybe 20 years, hmm. 20 years. What do you think is going to happen faster? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. 
Come on, man. Crypto? Like you're a betting man, so we should like bet something. Dude, speaking of which, I want to be an LP. Like I'll oh. say it on air. I want to be an LP. I don't know. Actually, is that legal? Can I say that on air? Uh, is that some kind of solicitation? I'm, I'm not fundraising. All right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> All right, whatever. Um, I'm your spiritual I'm, LP. No, I, I'm investing in your conscience yeah, or something. No, but I appreciate it. And I'm really, really happy that of all the successes, I mean, you know, with the low loss ratio and all the sort of things that we talked about and performance, like the founders, man, such a good industry too. Okay. My prediction is you said 20 years. Yeah. I said 10 years. Cool. What are we betting? An ETH. Sure. Okay. ETH and current prices are not. In so I had a bet with a friend. Current present uh, prices. So one of my friends bet me an ETH that Tim Ferriss had a child. I was like, I've listened to enough Tim Ferriss episodes to know that Tim Ferriss does not have a child. And she's like, no, I'm really sure. Oh, wow. I said, you're wrong. Sorry. Was so it, I, so I, that's the first ETH I want. So I'm free rolling. I'll make an ETH bet on Stripe easily. Okay, fine. Deal. Yeah, but I mean, there's new leadership at Amazon, right? Andy Jossie. Yeah, you know, he that's could that's do that's something that's crazy. He could do, he could definitely take that. I don't know. Like that could be the kind of sort of the like counterindication is like maybe I underestimate Amazon. Hmm. I just feel like. Ultimately, if you're looking at a 10-year, 20-year time horizon, it's more bet on culture. Yeah. Stripe, to me, feels like a step change in cultural evolution. I haven't spent I mean, I worked at Amazon. I, I'm not saying I have any privileged information about like a problem with Amazon's culture. It's more that I feel like Stripe is a little bit more forward-looking. Yeah. And Amazon essentially has a business that is levered against its culture. So the culture cannot be torn out of Amazon. You literally can't tear it out. Hmm. Stripe has an orthogonal culture, and it's an orthogonal yet superior culture. I wonder what revenue per employee is actually, net revenue, net, pure net margin. I love of. that statistic, by the way. Oh, me too. It's one of the coolest ways to look at public companies, I think. That and payback and revenue retention, the, the list goes on. But so What is uh, payback? Oh, like contribution margin payback, so like sales and marketing spend, and then like the true margin. Oh, so you, if I spend a dollar on marketing, how long does it take to come back to, to me? To truly recoup it. Yeah, I mean, when you look at like Zoom and some of these other ones, like quite nice from payback, and they contribute more and more. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I would actually guess maybe on a bl- The thing is, Amazon does all these like crazy experimental stuff though, right? Kind of like Google does too, like, right? like with their moonshots, whatever. They have so many employees who work on things that are like not near-term revenue generating. And I feel like with something like Stripe and payments, like, okay, their next thing is like Stripe for identity. And then they'll do like trade financing. That's all kind of tangential to their core product. And I think Amazon's a little bit more of a step change. I mean, it's kind of crazy that an e-commerce retail business is also like a cloud compute provider. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. But what are the other credible next ups to becoming? So I just love- The biggest company of all time. The biggest company of all time, or more just like there's this class of company I just I define as the general compute company. It's like Microsoft is a general compute company. Amazon's yeah. a general compute company. Stripe is a general compute company. What are the companies that have like credible roadmap to being general compute companies? I almost feel like I'm trying to think about like the ones, like who are the up and comers who could potentially get there. I kind of think like Vercel maybe because mm. Vercel's weird, but who else is weird enough to potentially become a general computer? Well, could we, we reverse track it? I mean, would you include like Nvidia or AMD in this? No, no. Okay, so I'm a little more further up. No, I do like the qualifications. Like, literally, has to be have the potential to become an Amazon sized business. General, yeah, general compute company. If a company can pull off being like. You know, workflow plus like CMS is a big, big enough. Market. Come on, man. It's culture. Like culture is a huge thing here. Like culture, it's like culture and product development strategy is like really what huh. we're talking about here. And access to capital. And access to capital. Like the whole time. That's a good question. You know, 
general compute. The thing is, I, I don't want, even though they, I know they've operated so beautifully and crazy, because I just feel like a little bit, like a little bit of an old school company at this point, I would want to say Salesforce. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. That's a really good one. Well, because like they've done all this sort of stuff. I'm like, okay, like... No, no, the Slack acquisition was definitive. Oh, yeah. So, so, so they have Slack stuff, then they have this like, you know, like they're going to get do more and like revenue rev ops, like rev ops, sales ops, marketing and sales alignment. They have their whole cloud, like, and they're just like, they all, they came from Oracle, like they're big company people. Yes. Like that thing, that thing should exist and will exist, I guess. You know, it's just a big company at this point. And they casually own Heroku, by the way. Oh yeah. Forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So they have a burgeoning cloud provider business also that is totally underestimated. Heroku is really underestimated. Definitely. We'll, we'll go in a sec. No, 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 no. All good. What, what should we close on? What's the topic we can close on? A couple of companies or two that we're both excited by. Sure. We talked we, we talk about big companies. Let's do that. Let's do let's, let's do two portfolio companies each. Oh, okay, sure. You can go first. All right. We'll do alternating. I'm going to say render, render.com. Tell me about Render. Okay. There's our alarm. Let's do all these two, these two companies that will go. Render, you haven't heard of render.com? No. Stripe employee number nine, I believe, Anurag Goel, basically with a vision to redo cloud. Basically starting with you want, you're a developer, you have some specific use case. You want to spin up a MySQL database. You want to spin up a container and run your application in it. Very determined use cases. I can't even describe the business very well, except other than that it's well-designed cloud. Take cloud from the ground up, design it very well, make the economics work. Eventually, he's going to go in the data center business probably in the next couple of years, I would guess, or three yep. years. I have no privileged information. But like that was one of the biggest personal investments I made. Huh. I love that. I love it when you, when, you go, when you go beyond like what feels like maybe uncomfortable. That's what happened. I, yeah. I did not sleep super well that night because like, look, I've gone broke twice, literally, literally twice in my life. Hmm. So like making a big bet on a very speculative asset is a little hard for me. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Okay. So I did one. Now okay, you, cool. You, just, you do your first. So one that I'm excited about, I, I love investing in companies that feel like blue ocean versus red ocean. So you and I have talked about this before offline, engineering analytics, and like what's like an understanding of like, is a developer productive? Like he or she or they, like, like how are they? How can we measure this? How can we kind of communicate and see it? And man, I've seen a lot of these companies that just do like get analytics, like pull and push and and then they'll then some companies that try to analyze code bases in like in an AI type of way, which is really hard. And that's like a research level problem. And I don't think it's like the answers are good enough yet. There's a company I invested in in Salt Lake City. And the founder's name is Abinoda. He was the founder of Pull Panda, which I think as a GitHub bought it for some money. And his entire career has been dedicated to developer productivity and, and experience. And his first version of his company was his sort of engineering analytics, you know, What's the code base? How many developers? Like this type of stuff. That what he what he came to me and like I love it. Like people who like kind of come back from the forest and they pitch me like, look, I've been doing this the whole time, but I think it's all wrong. Like what is right actually? It's a qualitative solution. So it's a surveying company. So there's all these like, the companies that like you know, Culture Amp and Fifteen Five that basically do like HR performance management. I pass in a bunch of these businesses because I thought it was low tech. Maybe it's one of my biases. Some of them have done really, really, really well. And you can quantify that qualitative feedback. Imagine doing it specifically for a developer. Like, hey, like, what's your bottleneck right now? Or, hey, like, have you done this versus that? And basically, like, getting qualitative feedback from developers inside the workflow without being disruptive. And it's the customer, the company is now being used, or the product's now being used by, like, three or four Fortune 100 customers. And it's like, you know, it's not a really big team, but it just does the solution right and correct. 
and does the engineering analytics as well. And so you can basically know if your developers are productive, know if they're happy, know if they're staying, and actually be able to quantify ROI and see how technical debt gets accrued. It's pretty cool. So that's mine. That was my, that was my first one. Okay, that's your first one. Yeah, okay, my second one. Well, watch that. Watch that space. And yeah, that was yeah, a great, great, yeah. great one. That's another yeah. one I want to interview. Yeah. And by the way, in that same category, I think we talked about this a little bit. You have the OKHQ, the WayDev, yeah, sweet like type of product, which I mm-hmm. think is pretty cool. It's sort of the full stack engineering dashboard productivity. Thing. And I want these companies to be successful, by the way, because it is st- it's pretty bad. Well, like, it's like, bad. I, like it's bad I, don't, sure. I don't, I don't. On the other hand, I kind of disagree with the whole category at a certain Ooh. level because Tell I me about it. look. I never like being told what to do, and I don't like people basically sending me a report of how I'm doing. Like, huh. I'll tell you how I'm doing is my attitude. Like, you want to know how I'm doing? Like, you want to know how much productivity I'm doing? Ask me. If you have an organization where you basically need to put in complete metrics-driven approaches to quantifying everything, like you're working in a bureaucracy. Well, it sounds like like you actually might like this company because they they ask you. Right. Yes. Okay. So it's qualitative. I mean, that's basically what you're saying. So it's a qualitative thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to take like the st- the strong position there, but I just I hate seeing no, I, I like, some I like overseer. To, yeah. I don't like having an overseer. I don't like having whether it's a robotic or it's a anyway. Yeah, but I mean, I see the pros and cons. What's my second one? What's my second company? Let's say, I mean, I could say Dev. Obviously, I should just say Dev. Dev's, oh, yeah. the, Dev's the first personal investment I ever made. Oh really? I'm literally wearing a shirt, a Dev shirt right now. <laughs> That's a good. One. I ordered like good every colors. item in the Dev. <laughs> store recently because I'm rooting for them so hard. That's awesome. Basically, they're going to redefine social networking. Cool. Like, I've actually heard of this company even before you mentioned it, and it sounds like fascinating. I'm totally talking my book here, but they are the first credible open source social network. The, the first credible open source social network. And just think about that. What does it actually mean? I mean, WordPress is kind of an open source social network if you really stretch huh. your imagination. I get the argument. But there's honestly yeah. nothing there. There's nothing like it. It's got network effects. The network effects are moving. Like, this is just going to be a gigantic, it's going to be such a gigantic force. It's going to be a Facebook level force in our lives. Cool. I've seen their, I've seen their mobile product. The mobile product is amazing. I've seen their, their community. I've seen the passion behind their community. They have such momentum. This is seriously the next big thing. I can't I'm wait. I'm totally talking my book right no, now. No, it's okay. But also too, you know, it's, this is another good thing about being in the Silicon Valley. Like these things can happen. They can happen freaking fast too. They can happen really fast. Yeah. Like in 10 years, like all of the companies we just talked about could totally be irrelevant. Maybe not Stripe or Amazon. Yeah. Or any of the companies in my portfolio of yours. Right. Just kidding. Well, <laughs> no, this comes back to the, so like- I'm joking, but like the things move really, really, really quickly. So you, you saw the the recent, the Martin Casado post about cloud cost. Did you see that one? Oh, no, I might have missed it. Okay. So he, he published this post about cloud cost and was arguing for cloud repatriation. Basically, the thing that Dropbox did, you know how Dropbox moved off the cloud? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put so it aside. He sort of is making a weird argument that's like, kind of like you should like everybody should be thinking of cloud repatriation basically at some point but that's not actually the point he was making really the point he was making was or the point that he and his co-author were making was essentially that cloud is expensive that's really all he was saying was cloud is expensive amen man amen right and the reason i bring that up is because none of these companies are dying literally none of these products that we're talking about Mm -hmm. the enterprise products none of them are dying at worst case they get acquired by some private equity, Vista equity, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Literally Total worst Bravo, case scenario, Vista whatever. equity vultures them up. Yep. Because they're all infra. Yep. Which is amazing because basically the really good companies that are being built are high margin. If you're a high margin business, you can afford for any product and service that yep. you need to run your business. It just goes under cogs and the cogs just grow and grow and grow. So the cogs yeah. grow and grow and grow and grow. The size of the business grows and grows and grows and grows. This is the renaissance. Yeah, cool. 
I like that. I like that a lot. Your yeah. Last, your last company. Okay. okay last company. Last, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to rant. <laughs> no, that was, that was great. Last company. Man, I, I love them like children. I really do. I do love, I love Strata. I had mentioned it's, there are a lot of companies that try to say like, hey, like we're going to be Okta for cloud or for SMEs or whatever. In the identity and access management world, one of the reasons why VPs of identity exist is because there's some part of the infrastructure that's just hard to cover. And most often, even though I know that like on-premise, the spend is still significant and growing, <laughs> and actually there's some more workloads and for on-prem than there is cloud, even though cloud is moving, moving quicker. These guys have figured out a way in a MuleSoft style way to basically have like a true single sign-on. And they're a 17 month old company and they have three fortune 100 customers using them for like six figure, seven figure type of deal. And it's good. And, And once you have identity and access management and pure kind of like coverage of your total infrastructure, you can for the first time really enforce policy. Like CTOs, like, you know, they dream of policy and like policy enforcement and management. And, but you can't really do these things unless you have the connecting pieces. And Strata, I think, really can. And they're a Denver team. And they were distributed even before the pandemic, which is cool. Kind of a minority, right? I mean, like GitLab, yes. And there's a, a handful of others that are distributed. They were distributed since day one. So I'm really, really, really happy. And if you guys want to get in, yeah, uh, feel so free what, to what, get in what, touch. Yeah, definitely. I'll def- definitely do a show on that. Yeah. So, but that's post-Octa IAM stuff? Yes, exactly. So like people can use Okta. Okta is just one part of it all, right? Because it only really covers like cloud applications and like some parts of cloud applications. There's so much on-premise stuff and you might have your LDAP thing or you might have Microsoft SharePoint. Like there's so many identity systems. Think about all the domain logins you have and how many names you have to kind of create for yourself. Like why? (laughs) Like why are there so many of them? There should be a few. There should be one. And in that way, Enterprises will actually know and can kind of quantify your risk and your behavior and who you are and shut things off and shut things on and do all these sort of things. And it's a really critical and important problem. Digital identity is something I, I love and think about. I've had different different cuts of that in my portfolio. But like this is this cut of it, which I think is can really be like a multi-billion, 10 billion type of business or even more, is Strata. So this is cool. I, lo- I love my portfolio. Like, and it's I believe in them so much. <laughs> well, it really does. So, you know, I made this first dev investment like at this point, three or four years ago. Since then, I've just been picking up little investments, little pieces of little companies that, yeah. I, that I, you know, knew something about, you know, knew. No, it's so, I, I, I follow you. I find it really interesting, the stuff you invest in, by the well, way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, it's totally a statement of like what you believe about the world of software. Oh, yeah. And by extension, the world of business. It's basically a, like, yeah, it's. It, yeah. Think about it, Think about where the money comes from, right? It's, it is a reflection of your time. You, yes. you have used your time to create some resources for yourself. And like, who are you putting it behind? All right. What, one other topic I want to talk to you about. Let's say like venture works out like as well as you could imagine. So let's yep. say your next your next fund is whatever you want to make it, hundred or sixty or whatever, and then your next fund after that is even bigger, and then eventually hypothetically, if I want to go that big, but yeah. So did you see what Bedrock did with this Czech company? Did we talk about this? We talked about it a little bit, but I'm like a fan of them from afar. And by the like I think we were mentioning best thesis, loose thesis, ever, but specific too. Yeah. I have love. I have Narr- love The afar. whole narrative violation, narrative violation thing the, is a, it's a great brand. It's genius. Great branding exercise. Yeah. But what I like most about them is the fact that they incubated a company called Check. Like they incubated, literally just incubated a company and said, we're going to do this. We're going to spin it out. It's a great thesis. Let's just do it. Let's put together the team. Let's just make it happen. So cool. And I believe this. That different people have done this sort of thing. A lot of it, I think, takes the form of an EIR program mm-hmm. where you bring, in, you bring in an entrepreneur who's thinking about ideas and then the EIR sort of ideates within the context of the firm 
But really, with Check, it seemed like, as far as I know, Eric and Jeff, the founders, is, were, is, is Check in stealth, by the way. It's not in stealth. Oh, cool. No, it's definitely not in stealth. No, there's check.com. They, Sweet. They've recruited, they bought the domain? It's a great domain. I think they have check.com. Not bad. Which is the same number of letters as Stripe and the same syllables as Stripe. And the whole idea is we're reverse Stripe. There's Stripe, but for outgoing payments. Cool. So Stripe is incoming payments. There's Stripe for outgoing payments, which is like brilliant. That's a huge idea. Yeah. But I just like the idea that basically, if you think about it from their point of view, and I've heard, I think there's a, a solo capitalist who is a very, very successful solo capitalist, probably the f- first one that comes to mind if you think success. Does it rhyme with Schmacky Froome? Perhaps. <laughs> yes, exactly. Actually, yeah. yes, perhaps exactly it does. <laughs> but, you know, I was talking to him about why he does what he does. And actually, Oren Zeev. Oren Zeev was, I think, the first first OG. Oh, that one's great. He did He's a killer. He did oh, trip yeah. actions. He did all the great Israeli companies. So many. And he's a really nice guy, too. One of my mentors, Mike Chalfin, who's my first boss, him, they're good friends. And it's funny, I think Mike became a solo GP because he saw Oren do it successfully, and I became a solo GP because I saw Mike do it successfully. So anyway, what he Sorry. said... <laughs> no, 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 it's yeah. totally fine, totally fine. But what he said was... I'm doing venture because I'm just sort of in between ideas. Like, you know, he's a serial entrepreneur, then he worked at Stripe, mm. and then, you know, just, I mean, you get to learn a ton doing venture. Not that he's like, you know, part-time venture capitalist at all. Like, the guy did the daily Series A, right? Yeah. Like, he's brilliant. But I like the idea that basically, if you're talented, just do multi-mode. You're an investor and an entrepreneur and like you wake up on whatever side of the bed you want to wake up on on any given day. And if you want to do investing, you do investing. If you want to start a company, go start a company. Yep. That's, I think, you know, that's certainly what I want to do. Fun. So I'm, that's what I'm asking you is like, is there a company you want to start at some point? Oh. Like, do you want to do, do you want to do both at the same time? Wow. Because it's the whole Warren Buffett thing, right? You learn how to invest from your businesses. You learn how yeah. to run businesses from your investments. I would do something maybe at some point in the future but I have a I have a bit of, of a philanthropic bent. So like, where do I see like great inequality in the world? Maybe something in education or healthcare in an emerging market. And maybe it's like, and from my selfish benefit, maybe it's an NGO where I don't know, like I have like family or I want to learn the language. But but honestly, like I don't have a specific specific idea like that. And then and, and when I do, I usually give them to entrepreneurs who I want to backing to do said idea. That's more in my in my world. But the ideal situation there is that you're chairman, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Actually, and speaking of Israelis, Israelis do this a lot and they do it really successfully. Oh. Uh, I know that, oh yeah, for sure. Like the Checkpoint founders do this a lot. Like I know Shlomo Kramer's done this a lot too, where they'll basically like give like meaningful seed capital and have like decent chunk of the company and then incubate it. I think incubation is awesome. I mean, like Atomic has done super well. I guess in LA where I am, like Peter Pham and like the science science group mm-hmm. and the consumer side. Yeah, it's amazing. I want to get closer to it too. But you run into a lot of complexity, right? It mm-hmm. becomes really complicated and potentially potentially damaging if you get something wrong. Damaging how or for who? Well, let's say you, you, you start to be known as the we do it all kind of thing. Like oh. we do it all and then actually our portfolio is not doing well and our like the company that I'm chairman of is not doing well and we're, yeah, and people, we're failing I, and everything. Seen, we're not focused on anything. Then you look like a dumpster fire. Yeah. And then people have to kind of step into the company and like become like interim CEO. I've that seen this happen at venture firms. This is the benefit of, at least for me, like being, you know, speaking my own book a little bit here, just being specific. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm best suited to like, you know, for like a direct to consumer, like purse brand, even though I know lots of, you know, like I could maybe, maybe, maybe I could do it. And I know some of the names and stuff and I have sisters and, you know, I've bought gifts, <laughs> but like in enterprise infrastructure, like if you, if you limit your scope a little bit more, hopefully you'll have compounding learnings. 
that's why I sort of hope with these incubation models that they actually have some more, more commonalities, right? More commonalities with one another. And like, I've seen a few emerge in like healthcare, for example, like incubating healthcare companies. There's so many, so many missing pieces. So mm-hmm. anyway, no one really incubates infrastructure companies. I mean, I guess like Sutter Hill, go Snowflake. Snowflake, yeah. And, and I know Sequoia, I guess you can argue like even Cisco sort of. Yeah, I think also a handful. I think right? one that I interviewed recently was called R two. I think it was R two C. Oh yeah, I've heard of this. I think that yeah, was yeah, an cool. incubated company. Nice, but very anyway, cool. Yeah, should we wrap up? Yeah, we should. Okay, this, this is, is awesome. This is delightful. Fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Seriously, it's been great getting to know you over the yeah. last year. Likewise, man, and I'm excited for all the for all the good things to be, and excited for your book. By the way, thank you. I haven't read it yet. I actually was going to plan on, on buying it and then having you sign it. So. I'll give you a signed copy tomorrow. Really? Yeah, I've got a bunch. Oh, cool. And also the audiobook is now freely available on uh, my podcast. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, shoot. I'll, I'll so check it out. Literally just like subscribe to my podcast and download it. I actually, I, I consume more via Audible and audiobook because yeah. your, yours are have more endurance in your eyes. <laughs> anyway, on that note, kids, <laughs> read your books. Anyway, thanks again very, very much. And thanks for listening, guys.